Uh, good morning. Um, my name is Matt Wadarzik. I'm part of the preaching team here, and it's always a privilege to be here speaking. Um, this is very unusual for me to be talking to a camera and people out there that I cannot see, um, but uh, you'll just have to roll with me here until I get this figured out. Uh, but I want to say a couple things uh, before I actually get started here. Uh, as you know, people can write in questions and comments if they're on a laptop or a PC during this program. We've had this one question that keeps popping up uh, that we need to answer for you, and, and that is, is that the question is, you know, we can see you at the live stream, can you see us at home? And the answer is, yes, we can, because we have seen you wear some of the strangest things on Sunday morning for live stream. Just kidding. Uh, and the second thing, uh, for those of you in the gym, uh, there's a special thing happening at the end of the program today is that Tyler Walsh will be leading you in a hip-hop Zumba class. And uh, he's ready for that, and he's anxious to do that for you. But today, let me, let me get serious here. Today we're going to be looking at another part of 1 John. And as you know, John is the apostle of love. He's talked about love from many different angles. Don't love the world, love our brothers, etc., etc. Uh, today, we're going to look at another concept that he has of love. And as that love is a way for us to gauge how we're doing in our Christian walk. But before we do that, let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you that we could be here. We thank you for this technology. We just thank you that you're, you're bigger than this world. And that uh, even though it doesn't feel like it, you have all of this under control. But uh, I just pray that you'll help us to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before I move ahead, I want to take you back to the 1500s, to what's known as medieval times. Uh, there was a gentleman named Martin Luther, and you've heard of him. He was one of the key figures in what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And what that was, was it was a pushback against the Catholic Church dogma of how to be right with God. Uh, and there was a particular scripture in there that that really bothered him for a long time. And it says, but the righteous will live by faith. And what he found was the concept that the church itself said that you had to be right with God. And one of the ways to do that would be to, what they called, mortify their body. And mortify in this context is the realm of where you would whip yourself you would deprive yourself of food. You would do all these physical things to yourself to make you right with God. But then Luther kept hearing this, the righteous will live by faith. But because he was all in as a Catholic priest, he was into the church. He used to do things like wear a shirt made out of coarse horse hair. He would sleep out in the snow with no blanket. He would sleep on hard benches. He was all in. But this verse kept bothering him. And he ended up in Rome at one time, in, I think it was 1510. And he went to this place that was called the Holy Steps. And it was 28 steps. And the fable was, was that these steps made out of marble 
were the ones that Jesus walked up to see Pontius Pilate before he died. And the fable was, if you walked up the stairs on your knees and prayed, that at the top, your sins would be forgiven. Well, he did that. He got to the top and he said, I don't think this was worth anything at all. And he realized it didn't mean anything. So, he started pushing back against this concept of self-mortification. Or, another way to look at it, it was also a concept of self-condemnation. To where he had to make his body submit and he would be righteous before God. Martin Luther was in constant fear of not being right with God. It was constant with him. He never thought that he could meet God's demand of sinlessness. And the church made it very, very hard. And he loved the Catholic Church. He just couldn't deal with some of this dogma. So you could listen to this and say, well, that is crazy. Why would people do that to themselves to be right with God? Well, that's a great question. Because the Bible says in Psalm 103 that um, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's what we know. In his time, they didn't bring that up. They brought more of God's mean, judgmental, cruel. So if I say to you today, and I, and I read Romans 8.1, and I say, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, all of you, a lot of you would say, amen, you're right, that's correct, I believe that. But I think some of you would go, really? Really? God's not condemning? So, I want to show you today that Christians do suffer with bouts of self-condemnation. See, in Martin Luther's time, this self-condemnation, this self-mortification was done where everybody could see it. Because there's no way you could not see a guy sleeping out in the snow with no blanket. Right? Christians today, they do it quietly. They do it in their heart. Or as um, Jennifer Knapp puts in her song, Martyrs and Thieves, just listen to this. She says, There are ghosts from my past who have owned more of my soul than I thought I had given away. Now listen to this. They linger in closets and under my bed and in pictures less proudly displayed. You hear that? Christians suffer self-condemnation quietly, alone, by themselves, and they fight with it. But let me show you how this plays out. And you're wondering, where is this found? Well, let me show you this. This is 1 John um, chapter 3, starting at verse 16. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 
This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Here, Jesus defines what love is. He laid down his life for us. Then it says, we're supposed to do the same for our brothers. Now, I'm not saying you out and crucify yourself for somebody else. I'm not saying that. But there's a principle here that he's trying to get at. Is we need to take care of our brothers. And then he says, but not to do. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So he's saying, hey, love. And the love is not with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. He's saying, less talk, more doing, right? But there's something here that I want, I want you to see to hold on to. It says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Well, what is the this then pertaining to? It's pertaining back to loving others with action and in truth. I want you to hold on to that. But what this is also saying is, at times our heart is not at rest in his presence. Have you ever felt not at ease in God's presence? Have you ever felt as David did in Psalm 43 where he says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? What is causing our heart to condemn us? Hmm. So it says, whenever our hearts condemn us, it means that our hearts will condemn us. You go, ouch. Okay, so what does that mean? What does self-condemnation mean? What is it? Here's a quote. It says, It is your own voice internalized, self-talk that comments negatively on your value, your personhood, your actions, your feelings, your behaviors. Common thoughts of self-condemnation would be, you are stupid, unacceptable, weak. You are sinful, unworthy, a fraud, you are unforgiven, unlovable, a failure. You are a loser. Ever talk this way to yourself? I think at some point we all have. But then you go, okay, how can a person end up feeling these, this self-condemnation? I'm going to give you just some examples. First one is our own expectations create our self-condemnation. I ran into a person once that said, you know, God told me to go this direction. And I said, okay, cool. And he says, but it's not working out right. I made a mistake. I obviously wasn't listening to God. And I said, why? Well, because everything went sideways when I started going that direction. And you go, well, who said it was going to be easy to go that direction? And this person literally thought that if God says go that way, that it would just be very easy to get where you're going. The path would be easy. Everything would fall in place. 
And I said, well, no, that's not the way it works. If you look at the Apostle Paul, he took off on some things where God told him to go. It wasn't easy. So they created this expectation. Then they blamed themselves because they thought they made a mistake. Feel the condemnation? And then another way it happens is others' real or perceived expectations create self-condemnation. Ran into a person uh, two, three years ago whose father had died six months before, and we were at a prayer meeting and, uh, or something like that, and they said, I feel bad that I am not over my father's death yet. I, and they said, I should be farther along. And I went, whoa, 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 no, time out, time out. Everybody's grief is different. We're all wired different. Where did this expectation come from that you were supposed to be over it right now? They either got it from themselves or they got it from some other person that probably said to them, you should be over this by now, and it created guilt and condemnation. Ah. Then the third one is people with sensitive consciences. Um, these are great people to be around because they can pick up on cues that the rest of us don't. But on the same token, they are the ones that could walk into a room, feel that there's a problem, and they blame themselves for it. And they really struggle with this. So, what does this do to Christians that fall into these different things, this self-condemnation? Well, one is... Uh, it's rather interesting. They confess and reconfess the same sin that they confessed years ago. Now, here's a quote. Um, Reliving sin is a destructive way of trying to produce a godly life. God's method is to forgive our sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west and remember it no more. There is also a passage, I think in Psalms, where it says that God throws our sin behind his back. So people relive this same thing over and over again. Or they think it's healthy to relive, keep thinking this over and over again, so they don't do the same thing again. So their mind is constantly going, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. So guess where their mind is? It's always on them saying, I'm a loser. Or think about this Martin Luther, medieval time self-mortification they believe it's a form of healthy penance to keep going over their failings and shortcomings. So you go, wow. Didn't know this could happen. It does. Well, how does this sound in a person's head? And what does it sound like when they're going all over, getting all over themselves from a condemnation standpoint? I'm going to I'm going to read some lyrics here from, uh, this is a song about a parent speaking to their child. And this is Alanis Morissette from her Jagged Little Pill album. I don't suggest your kids listen to this album. There are some dark themes in it. But let me get into character here, and I think you'll recognize this. This song is called Perfect. And it goes like this. Sometimes is never quite enough. If you're flawless, then you'll win my love. 
Don't forget to win first place. Don't forget to keep that smile on your face. Be a good boy. Try a little harder. You've got to measure up. Make me prouder. How long before you screw it up? How many times do I have to tell you to hurry up? It goes on from there. That's what it sounds like. But I need to tell you this. God does not sound like that. You hear it? God does not sound like that. God doesn't sound like that. Say, okay, what does he sound like? First Kings, there's a story of Elijah in a cave, and God comes to talk to him, and they mention that he is a still small voice or a gentle whisper. Well, I say actions speak louder than words. I want you to listen here to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. And it says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brothers, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What do you hear? Just think about that. Christ died for our sins. What do you hear? Those actions speak far more louder than words. And what's interesting about this is Paul lists himself at the end as to one abnormally born, well, I have to say, we're in that crowd. We're all the same. But then, now that we know about this self-condemnation, what do you do with it? Let's go back to the, the First John passage. And look at verse 13. It's, or Sorry, verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Did you hear that? God is greater than our hearts. So if our hearts are talking to us incorrectly, why are you listening to it? I vote listen for God. And it also says he knows everything, which means he knows all about you, your struggles, your failures, your generational curses that you live with, what you will do tomorrow, what you did yesterday, that errant thought that you just thought a few seconds ago that no one knows about, what you will have for lunch. He even knows what non-believers are up to. We can't hide from him. But then you could ask the question, well, what does it feel like to not have self-condemnation or to get away from it? What does it feel like? Well, 
It means you get to look forward, not backwards. You understand you have a bright hope in the future. You know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. You can approach his throne of grace and confidence. Your spirit becomes free to live freely. But I know there's some folks out there that, that are going practical right now. They're trying to think, okay, what can I do now? What are some things that I can work on, that I can dwell on with the self-condemnation? I have a little list here. I've got a couple lists. But first one is, and this is right out of the first John passage, are you loving others more now than before? If you can look back and say, yes, I am, okay, that should overrule what your heart is saying. You're right with God. You're okay. Maybe even at the time, you don't like anybody when you're feeling this way. It's okay. If you look back, you got it. Understand it's not from God. This is Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation who are in Christ Jesus. If we're thinking this way, we need to capture the incorrect thought. Which is 2 Corinthians 10.5. Capture the cost, the, the thought, and make it obedient to Christ. Renew your mind, which is Romans 12, 2. Um, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to test and approve what God's will is. Uh, this next one, change your personal definition. This is Colossians 3.10. This says, put on your new self, which means you take off the old self. Well, the new self, you know, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You have to put on the new creation. You know, you don't buy a new shirt and hang it up. You put the new shirt on, right? Then believe what God says about you. And I'm going to come back and explain this a little more. I want to put it in context. Um, I coached girls' soccer for about uh, five to six years. And i got to be honest with you, the first year and a half with this team, I was the assistant coach, was depressing. They kept losing. And uh, I've said before, I put, you know, I've coached baseball and soccer. I prefer putting a team on the field that's there to win. I don't go for participation awards. Uh, I want trophies, which we, we got over time. But for the first year and a half, I had to tell these girls, you're better than you are. I see more out of you. There is more that you can be doing. And they were just stuck in their rut of losing. And losing is no fun. But suddenly, they win a game against a good team. And the light turned on. They started running over people. They turned into the force that I knew they were. They finally believed what I was telling them. They basically changed their personal definition. I'm no longer a loser. I want to win. You know, we still lost a few games. We had things go sideways. But they radically changed because they finally believed who they were in the soccer world. They finally caught it and ran with it. To flip this around, 
I want you who have a faith-saving relationship with Jesus to believe who you are. That you no longer have to live in a self-condemned state. So I want to leave you with what God says about you. I say I'm a loser, but God says he has blessed me with every spiritual blessing. I say I'm a loser, but God says he chose me before the foundation of the world. I say I'm a loser, but he predestined me to be adopted as a son. I say I am a loser, but he redeemed me through his blood. I say I'm a loser, he revealed to me the mystery of his will. I say I'm a loser, he marked me with the seal, the Holy Spirit. I say I'm a loser, but God says he guaranteed my inheritance. Please, remember what God says about you. You don't have to live in a self-condemned state. If you just look at all this, you realize the value that he's placed on you? And you want to sit there and say, I'm a loser? Uh Uh-uh. Not in God's economy. So let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you saved us. We thank you that you considered us so valuable that you sent your son to die for us. We just thank you for all this. And we know that we have a, a bright hope in the future with you. We know that you're greater than our hearts. We know all of these things. I pray that we can just grab hold of them and hang on. For you're bigger than everything. In Jesus' name, amen.